famous lore in Washington now that we, you know, we haven't voted for a Republican for president since 1984. We had voted for Republicans for four cycles in a row before that. The fact is, in adolescence, death by gun is, one of, is in the top five causes of death, believe it or not. Tommy Kahn inbounds. Bob Rule with the ball jumps up at 15 for the left side. That's Stuart Elway on Washington's political climate, Dr. Mark Del Vaccaro of Seattle Children's, and Bob Blackburn, the first voice of the Seattle Supersonics. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience, My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. Deep political and cultural divisions are rampant. Some political scientists say that the U.S. has never been so divided since the Civil War. And that goes for Washington State as well. King County is as blue as eastern Washington is red. And pollster Stuart Elway will join us in just a few moments to tell us why. The state of Washington has not elected a Republican governor since 1980. This is the longest period of time where one party has not only held the governor's chair, and not just in Washington state, but in the history of the United States. The governors in Washington state have all been Democrats for the last 36 years in a row. Do the Republicans have any chance of electing a governor from their party in 2020? As things stand right now, that is about as likely as the Mariners winning the World Series this year. Dr. Mark Del Picaro, Chief Medical Officer with Seattle Children's, will return and update us on the latest breakthroughs in pediatric care. You heard a brief clip of Bob Rule making a basket to defeat the Boston Celtics in 1968. Now, the name Bob Rule probably doesn't resonate with a lot of people in the Seattle area right now, But I believe to many people who were there at the time, including me, that he was the first pro sports star in Seattle's history. Why do I bring this up now? Bob Rule passed away last month in Riverside, California, and I just want to honor his memory. Question of the week. Who do you think is the biggest star in Seattle sports history? And it doesn't have to be a pro. It can be an amateur. It could be a college player, high school player. Call 425 653 1166. That's 425 653 1166. Back with my interview with Stuart Elway in just a few moments. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five minute self employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Nationally recognized pollster H. Stewart Elway is my guest. He has been conducting polls in the state of Washington and throughout the country since the mid-1970s. 
He now has a very close relationship with Crosscut News Service. He conducts the Elway poll and writes columns for Crosscut. He recently conducted a poll in which he asked Washingtonians what party are they leaning towards in the upcoming election in 2020. I think you'll find the results of his poll quite fascinating, as I did. But my first question to Stuart was, what methodology did he use to put this poll together? We asked people, if they had to register by party in order to vote, which party would you register in? We've been asking that same question almost every month since 1992. And this last one that's cut my attention and others is that uh, there was the largest gap between Republicans and Democrats that uh, recorded in in all that time. It was uh, 41% said they would register as a Democrat, 21% said they would register as a Republican. Of course, we we don't register by party in Washington State. So why do you think this is happening? Washington State used to pride itself on being an independent voting state as recently as 2000. Going into the 2000 election, that was Bush-Gore, it was even. As a matter of fact, Republicans had a one-point advantage uh, heading into that election. So it was was like 30-31. It started then by the end of Bush's first term, it was an eight-point advantage for the Democrats. By the end of his second term, it was a 14-point advantage for the Democrats. Throughout the Obama administration, it fluctuated some, but it ended up at 13 or 14 points. And now we see uh, 19, 20 points advantage for the Democrats. Former Governor Dan Evans, a Republican, there's still a lot of nostalgia for him. That's a long, long time ago. It's kind of like the Seattle Mariners still resting on the laurels of 1995. Yes, uh, it is. It's a long time ago. But that, you know, that is one time where um, uh, that exemplifies what the state used to be. Because when Evans first got elected in 1964, in the face of the Lyndon Johnson landslide, there are... um, way over a million voters in Washington now, or when he left office. So uh, things have changed. It's famous lore in Washington now that we, you know, we haven't voted for a Republican for president since 1984. We had voted for Republicans for four cycles in a row before that. And, and one of the indicative things that illustrates what I was speaking about earlier, in 1988, the uh, Republican Party uh, sent a delegation to the National Convention that supported evangelical televangelist uh, Pat Robertson for president over H.W. Bush, who was Reagan's vice president. As you know, Stu, I have been a Democrat my entire life. But at a different time, I was very comfortable working with Republicans. I worked with Sam Reed prior to him becoming Secretary of State and indirectly for Governor Dan Evans. As a matter of fact... Democrat Paul Casey will make this observation that I believe that Republican Dan Evans was the best governor of Washington state during my lifetime. And now you wouldn't catch me within 20 miles of any Republican gathering. And now let's take a look at the standout candidate right now for the Republican Party in 2020. His name is Phil Pertinato, and he is a Republican state senator from Auburn, Let's see what distinguishes him so far. First, he carries guns to rallies. Number two, he calls Seattle. 
the belly of the beast. Now, I don't even know what that means, and I'm not going to spend a moment in trying to figure it out. But my question is, Seattle is the biggest city in the state of Washington by far. How can you have a campaign that will have any chance of winning by insulting 700,000 people? The Republicans have not had a governor in the state of Washington for 36 years. That's not just the longest time of one party being out of office in the state of Washington's history. It's the longest period of time that one party has had a governor in power in the history of the United States. What is their strategy? This has been a strategy of the Republicans for a long time. All those moderate Republicans that we were talking about, Dan Evans, Slade Gorton, um, Joel Pritchard, they all came from Seattle. There was a time when most of the Seattle delegation to the legislature were Republicans. And now you can't see a Republican from the top of the Space Needle anymore. As this evolved, they were making a strategic decision to run, not against Seattle necessarily, but run around Seattle. So they say, look, Seattle's getting more Democrat. We can't win there, but we can win everywhere else. So the strategy became surround Seattle, win the suburbs, win eastern Washington, and win. They were talking about the Emerald Curtain. Uh, We're not going to let Seattle's values corrupt the rest of the state. And that's how the Republicans won. And they got wiped out. Because uh, what's happening is that between 2010 and 2020, there's 700,000 new people coming into are in coming into Washington State, and well over half of those are settling in the four Central Puget Sound counties, and so the the um, the uh, philosophy and the approach and the politics of Seattle are migrating out into the suburbs with the people. And uh, so you run against Seattle, and you are also running ideologically against many people in the suburbs. So now we have the, we're in the position in Washington where there's not a single Republican legislator in King County, which is just phenomenal. Because that's, that's where the battleground has been for the last decade. And as I said, Republicans used to be in Seattle. Now there's not a single Republican. There's one who has some little corner. But there's not a, other, than, other than, you know, a couple of acres. There's not a Republican legislator in King County. And outside of the city of Spokane, there's not a Democrat legislator in eastern Washington. So... So we've gotten into a position where the the state is divided not only geographically, but part by partisan ideology as well. Uh, uh, there was a time when there were Democrats from Eastern Washington, there were Republicans from King County. Um, so you could you could made it easier to facilitate some compromise on on issues across the aisle. Now, the, the, the parties and the geography are lining up and makes it harder to get anything done. Why can't a people who are Republicans, the moderates, step in and do what Dan Evans did in 1964 and said the John Birches, the right wing, are not welcome in the party? What's going on here? Why can't they see this? I used to 
talk about big tent parties. There were liberal Republicans, there were conservative Democrats, and and all of that. Well, there aren't any more. There are still uh, moderates on both sides, but they are uh, in the minority in the in each party. So the it's, ideologically, the parties tend to uh, go to their corners. We talk about the tribal politics and how polarized it's become, and how it just seems like that it's at a at a pitch now that we haven't seen. And people make references to the last time it was this divided was you know 1860. It seems to me like it it really started not maybe not started but really ramped up after that 2000 election where George Bush lost the popular vote and won the presidency. Since then, it just seems like we've been in continuous partisan combat. And, and I think that substantial part of that is due to the fact that we did have a split between the Electoral College and the popular vote. It's like we've been in the same presidential election for almost 20 years now. That's H. Stewart Elway, and he is recognized as one of the top pollsters and research firms in the U.S. The names Russell Wilson, Jim Zorn, Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, all Seattle pro sports legends. But who is arguably the first sports legend in Seattle? For people who have been watching local sports for many years like me, the name Bob Rule will come to mind. Bob Rule was the second pick of the expansion NBA team in 1967, the Seattle Supersonics. I bring the name up of Bob Rule now because he passed away last month in Riverside, California, and it brought some memories back. Since the Sonics were an expansion team, they didn't win many games that season, but they had some pretty amazing highlights. One was a win against the Los Angeles Lakers with Jerry West and Elgin Baylor at the Seattle Center Coliseum very early on in the season. They won the game 137-132 to in regulation. There was no overtime. Bob Rule scored 47 points in that game, and what makes that number of points more astonishing There was no three-point line. The most points you could make on a shot were two points. And I was at that game. Now, later on in the season, the Boston Celtics, led by Bill Russell and John Havlicek, came to town. And for that game, I turned on my reel-to-reel tape recorder and caught the last couple of seconds at the game. It was a tie game, and I'm just going to replay that for you now. Siegfried. Siegfried jumps one up top of the key. In two seconds of the game is tied up. Seattle takes timeout. Tommy Cron inbounds. Bob Rule with the ball. Jumps over 15 for the left side. The crowd broke on top. 
The inbounds pass came deep to Bobby Rule. A fadeaway 15-footer out to the left of the lane at the baseline, and it went right in. And the crowd immediately, like Mount Vesuvius, erupted all over the place. And I know we couldn't be heard, so I yelled it was good. And I assume by the cheering of the crowd, those of you listening around the great Pacific Northwest, then assumed what happened next. That's Bob Rule making the winning basket against the Boston Celtics to win an exciting game in Seattle. And you could hear that old horn go off in the Seattle Center Coliseum. Also calling the game, legendary broadcaster Bob Blackburn. So Bob Rule with being the first pro sports star in Seattle. Bob Blackburn was the first pro broadcaster in Seattle, and he was a star as well. officer with Seattle Children's is on the line. His specialty is pediatric care. He also works in emergency medicine where he says he gets to play with the kids, treat their broken bones, close their lacerations, and relieve a family's concern or help shepherd them through a difficult health crisis. What's the difference between treating and researching children's diseases as opposed to adult diseases, and how did he decide to go into pediatric care? The one that's certainly the most visible in our system right now is the work that's being done with our cancer immunotherapy program. There are other places in the world doing it. I think we're definitely in the lead in that, and we certainly have more trials open than I think other any other place. I can remember vividly as a first-year intern having to start an IV in a, in a cancer child who's going through chemotherapy. Essentially, cancer treatment now is giving people enough poison to kill any growing cell in their body and hope that they survive, and we wipe out the cancer without killing them. And we've been doing a version of that for decades. It, it hasn't really fundamentally shifted. We've gotten you know, newer drugs, and they've certainly targeted things in a, in a better way, and the survival has gone up. To be on the cusp of where we're using people's cells and, and um, teaching them how to attack their own cancer cells, and potentially being able to put people in remission, either long-term or cure them without going through that, to me is like a, a major fundamental shift. I think the closest thing I would say that analogous to that, that we have done amazing work on, and unfortunately there's a backslide right now, is in vaccines. When I was a resident, we would take care of kids with horrible cases of meningitis and sepsis. Do you know what? I mean by those two words. Meningitis I'm familiar with, but was it septus? Sepsis. Yeah, sepsis. it's where you get it. It's same idea. It's overwhelming bacterial infection in your bloodstream, and it just destroys all your organs, and you die of that, um, versus meningitis, which is where the infection is heaviest located in your in your brain and spinal canal, and, Got and it. Yes. it kills you that way. And, mm -hmm. you know, I thought kids die of those things like all the time when I was a resident and now it's incredibly rare like you just don't see it and in fact some diseases that I had to take care of as a kid you know modern people don't 
they have no clue what that is. There seems to be an anti-vaccine sentiment in some quarters of this country that's growing, and I'm certainly concerned about that. What's your thoughts about that? People can get out on any kind of website or FaceTime or whatever, and they, they make themselves an expert, and they convince other people that they know something. Once people convince themselves of something, it becomes almost like a religious belief, and then you can't argue them out of it with facts. Like, facts become meaningless at that point. And the number of people that are not vaccinating is just astounding. Could Uh, we see something of a resurgence of some disease that will come back in a big way that we thought we eradicated because of this um, kind of attitude? Well, we've already seen quite a few measles and whooping cough or pertussis outbreaks in this country and locally in in Washington state. Luckily, they're still a, a minority. What's saving them is the fact that almost everybody still does it. Because let's just say we reach some tipping point, and I don't, you know, I would have to talk to the CDC or something, find out what that is. If there's enough people immunized, but the people that are not immunizing are being saved by the fact that there's not enough germs around to infect their kids. If we drop below a certain level with standard vaccines and their kids started dying of these things or they ended up in our ICUs because of some of those illnesses, that's what happens. Believe me, they would change their belief. (laughs) Right. But that's what it's going to take. Hopefully we don't hit that tipping point. But if we do, that's what it's going to take to get us back on center, I suppose. Yeah. And I can tell you, it has helped move some states a little bit more to not allowing completely free personal exemption from sending their kids to school. It takes a big thing for people to do that. There was a big measles outbreak, if you remember, a year or two ago related to Disneyland visit. Yes, and that helped. And that actually helped California governments to tighten up the personal exemption rules. Vaccines and clean water have done more to extend the life of people than almost anything we've ever done. The next one is food. So when we say, what are we, what are we doing, though, that's sort of unique in, the, in our end of the woods, I would say it's cancer immunotherapy. I would also say that one of our great successes and secondary challenges is now because of a lot of things we've done, kids with different kinds of either congenital or other things that used to not allow them to survive now live, you know, well into their teens, 20s, 30s, and even beyond. Kids with cystic fibrosis, for instance, and things like that. And my belief is probably maybe not in my lifetime, but in in some point, they'll be able to find things like kids with diabetes and kids with cystic fibrosis and some other things, and they'll figure out, oh, you have this specific gene defect. I think within, you know, not too long, there'll be a number of those that they'll say, oh, you're missing this specific gene sequence, or you have this specific gene that's not working correctly. And gene therapy to fix those things has already started in some illnesses, and I think that will progress a lot. Right, and isn't that my limited knowledge in this field, but what I read really gene therapy is the key to eradicating diseases. Otherwise, you're just treating it, as you said, poison treating poison. I think for many diseases, that is true. 
There are some things, however, that are not that way. There are still, unfortunately, trauma and accidents still kill a lot of children. And in fact, it, in adolescence, death by gun is, one, is in the top five causes of death, believe it or not. We don't approach it in any way, shape, or form like that because of the whole political issue. Certainly. It is, in, in, in medicine, this is one of the biggest views of a public health emergency. I guarantee you, if children were dying of any other illness at the rate they die of gun violence, that society would be totally on top of getting rid of it. A lot of the teenagers that die from this die from self-inflicted, from suicide. Isn't like 60% of people with guns die of suicide? That's the number one yeah. cause. And, and a huge portion of that are also elderly people. What advantages do adults have over children in receiving quality health care? Whether Medicare is good or bad, the good thing about it is, is that all adults over age 65 have some level of uniform health care coverage. So it doesn't matter whether you live in rural Wyoming or New York City or, you know, Alabama or whatever. Kids, however, Medicaid rules and funding vary widely across states, and their access to health care is wildly different across places. And again, I say the thing that, well, if you want a healthy adult, you need a healthy kid. That's Dr. Mark Del Beccaro, Seattle Children's Chief Medical Officer. I certainly learned a lot in this interview. I hope you did too. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Stuart Elway, Dr. Mark Del Picaro, and the late Bob Rule for bringing such happy memories in his first season as a Seattle Supersonic. And what I believe, and I think many others believe as well, he was the first pro sports star in the history of Seattle. The Sonics played in Seattle from 1967 until 2008, and then they moved on to Oklahoma City. Let's leave it at that. I have not watched an NBA game since the Sonics moved. Am I carrying a grudge? Well, maybe I am, but I don't really care. Question of the week. Who do you think is the greatest sports star in Seattle's history and why? Call 425-653-1166 and leave your comments. Please limit your thoughts to no more than 45 seconds. I want to get as many people on the air as possible. Now, this star does not have to be a pro. It could be a college player. It could be a high school player, amateur, whatever. Just your opinion, who you think is the best sports star in Seattle's history. That's 425-653-1166. Voices of Experience airs Tuesdays at 4.30 p.m., and then it is repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience. You can call me anytime about, uh, let's say, a future topic on the show, or if you just want to chat. That phone number is 206-459-5536, 206 459 
Have a great rest of the week.